Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to episode number 367 of the Parastyle Podcast. Today is April 20th, 2015. We've got a big show for you this week on the podcast. Coach Harvey Hyde's on Secret Assignment, so we're going to do a Dan Weber and Ryan Abraham show. The whole show, just uscfootball.com, beat writer Dan Weber and myself. We have a lot of questions to get to. Stuff about the team, stuff about this Todd McNair case. No one knows it better than our own Dan Weber, so we'll just go bring him on. Dan, what's going on, buddy? How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. And enjoying the uh, you know, first week after after spring ball and starting to look ahead. I'm kind of taking a look at um, at the schedule, which I'll have a, a piece up tomorrow as to how the, you know, this is the time of year when you're actually allowed and encouraged to look ahead, and you don't have to take them one game at a time. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's going to kind of try to play. I think it was interesting that ESPN came out with their uh, the staff and info people that you've dealt with, and uh, they analyzed all of the uh, uh, non-conference schedules for the next five years, and I think 85% of the non-conference games were set. And um, the top four schedules in terms of difficulty in the country, Texas was barely number one. Number two, three, and four were USC, uh, Stanford, and UCLA. So USC is uh, even if people say, oh, my gosh, uh, you know, Arkansas State and Idaho, for the next five years right now, USC has the second uh, most difficult non-conference schedule. Uh, so uh, that's something to, you know, when you look ahead, uh, uh, you know, they've just uh, in the Pac-12, three of the top four uh, difficult schedules are in the Pac-12. Yeah, certainly, and uh, it'll be interesting to – to watch how this unfolds, like you mentioned, those two games that should be fairly easy, but of course, uh, Alabama coming, uh, go, you know, playing USC in 2016. A lot of people are already talking about that, so it'll be and Notre Dame, of course, every year. It depends how how well they do, but that'll be interesting to uh, keep an eye on. But usually, the Pac-12 schools have those uh, highly ranked schedules. Um, and I was I was telling people the reason Texas is number one probably is because they pick USC up. Oh yeah, down uh, what, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, so uh, it helped Texas out too. Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, then <laughs> we went. Once that kind of helped, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but but that's the uh, so yeah so kind of interesting uh, when you think about it and that that USC uh, you know getting Notre Dame every year you know it does change things and if you get Notre Dame and a Texas in the same year that's just unheard of I mean and nobody else plays uh, you know two games like that. Yeah, I mean, 2016 will be Notre Dame and Alabama in the same year. You know, they played for the national championship in 2012. So um, it's uh, it's like people forget that, Dan. I, when people talk about the schedule, they never seem to mention, well, they also play Notre Dame. It's almost like it's a conference game, but it's it's yeah. not, you know. People feel like that. No, it's in addition to uh, the nine-game conference schedule, you know, where, again, that is something they don't do. And uh, and the other conferences, you know, they may talk about it, you know, like maybe they'll do it, but they don't do it yet. <laughs> so uh, and uh, not only that, but then a uh, championship game. So, you know, to win the Pac-12, we basically have to win 10 conference games. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's we're going to jump in here. We have a lot of questions, like I said. And uh, if you have any questions for us, you can email us podcast at uscfootball.com is the email address. Or you can call a vo- leave a voicemail at 206 206- Eight 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 six seven five five, or you can uh, leave a voicemail right on our website, peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page, right from your computer, you can leave us a voicemail. And uh, we do have a lot of questions to get to, Dan. I think we're going to start off, we'll start off talking about some spring ball stuff, and then um, I think after that we'll talk about the, uh, we didn't get to talk to it last week because there were so many questions about the spring game uh, that, of course, uh, you know, last Saturday or, you know, a week and a half ago or whatever it was. 
Um, but we did have a lot of Todd McNair NCAA questions that we are kind of rolling over this week. So we've got a lot to get to, but we'll start with the team first. And here's our first question. Hi, Ryan. This is Al from uh, Fresno. Went to the spring game. Um, didn't see much, but uh, I talked to the guys afterwards, and uh, the guys seem uh, really excited. Uh, I am impressed with the talent level that we have here. There's so many big names and so many people that can produce for, for the team. Uh, my only concern is the coaching. Is the coaching going to put the, the talent on the team and give them the best opportunity to, uh, to win, or is it going to play, play close to the vest? Um, really, truthfully, I think we need a more dynamic coaching team that's willing to open the playbook, utilize all the talent, put them all in the field. Uh, like I told uh, Soma Vunuku, uh, if they gave the opposing team a steady diet of Pinner and Vanuku and soften up that defense and then bring in Justin Davis, you know, to, to bust open those holes, you know, I, I think we'd be, a, we'd be a more powerful team. Um, I'd like to know what the coach thinks. Thanks. Well, I'll answer for the, for the coach here. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, the thing that, that bothered you a little bit about the spring game was the, uh, the first couple of times they tried to power, power run the football and uh in the red zone or goal line or third down and two that kind of thing they just got you know somebody uh knife through and uh you know stopped the play before it really got started i think they have to you know to be dynamic i think they really do have to be able to you know power block and uh and they've got to be able to block for you know for justin or for trey or for you know soma you know whether it's uh, you know the average size back or the big back or the really big back, uh, they've got to figure out you know how not to allow those plays to break down. Again, it wasn't you know tackling, uh, so you don't get a you know you get, you don't get a great uh, a great look at things. And I know you know with just the one true tailback and the, the defensive line basically having just a couple of guys uh, that figure in the rotation. Uh, that that was not a matchup that they decided to, to go through, you know, go with a lot. But I, I would like to have seen more of that. Uh, whether that's more dynamic coaching or whatever it is, I just think they, you know, they have to. They're saying all the right things, and I think they're doing the right things in practice. But they have to do the, you know, the right things at the end of games, and uh, have to believe in themselves. Uh, they have to believe that, you know, when they line up with UCLA, that UCLA is the team that's going to get. Uh, you know, physically uh, run off the field. And they, they've they got to stop, you know, ever letting anybody intimidate them physically. I think that that is the big big part of it. I think they'll open the playbook. I don't think, um, I don't think that's a problem. Uh, I just think, uh, you know, knowing who you are, knowing what it takes to win at USC, and knowing that, you're, you know, you're going to be more physical uh, and more aggressive and, you know, you're going to play faster and you're going to do all those things that, uh, great USC football teams do. I think that's the that's the key, and 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 what the, you know what exactly that you know you call that in terms of coaching. I think you just have to you know know who you are, know how you're going to win football games, and know when when a push comes to shove. Unlike last year, you're going to be able to make the play, the big play at the end of the game, and and that's kind of a belief system that you, uh, you know, that all of Pete's teams that felt like that and could do that all believed that that occurred in practice, that they learned that ability to believe in themselves by the way they went at it in practice and the way they went at it against one another. And, uh, you know, that was an awful lot of the genius in Pete. You know, people would say, oh, they make great halftime adjustments, or they do this. Now, they, they practice so well. Uh, and their practices so prepared them for the game situations that they weren't, you know, afraid to make the big play when they had when it had to happen. And that's what we didn't see enough of last year in in those four losses. Uh, and um, that's, I think, the thing that that has to happen this year. All right, makes sense. Uh, thanks for that question. All the way from Fresno, I came down. I think he came down. Uh... Uh, Al came down last year and got to see me on the sidelines of the uh, spring game, but we were up in the press box this year, so I didn't get to see uh, Al. But hopefully you enjoyed the trip down and uh, enjoyed the game. I think it was a little more exciting than the one from last year. Well, now Hopefully next year it'll be like a full-on spring game 
Like you got to yeah, see. Yeah, I, uh, I think they actually listened out. I think they tried harder to put on a show. Yeah. Uh, with with the numbers, and I think they wanted, and yet they also stuck with their, you know, with the idea that they were going to get Max Brown plenty of work and give him kind of a game situation. I mean, he's a lot more prepared, I think, to take the team over now than he was before the spring game. So they didn't back off of that, and I like that a lot. Uh, well, let's move to – let's go to James. He says, if the personnel issues in the in the defensive line do, do not appear to be getting solved early in preseason camp, are there any of the offensive linemen um, – that would be candidates to switch over. I believe it's normally done the other way, defense to offense, but seems like if plugging the interior tackle box area is a problem, they would be able to make use of some of that depth to address if needed. That's from James. Uh, James, uh, you think like I do, but I've had absolutely no luck over the years whatsoever in getting anybody to make that switch, I don't think. I'm trying to think if there was anybody... I mean, one guy I wanted to see him do it with is is John Martinez, for example, wasn't going to start, you know, offensive guard. I wanted to see him, you know, give him a shot at nose tackle or or wherever with his, you know, quickness and strength and leverage and all that. Uh, Didn't didn't get any any help there. Uh, On this group, you know, you don't want to kind of start taking away from guys – but you look at, you know, you look at, um, you know, Khalil Rogers and you look at Jordan Simmons and you say, you know, both of them could probably, uh, you know, play, play D-line if they really wanted to. I mean, it, you know, kids become specialists so early now that you just don't see that happening much. But, um, but I do think there'd be a, you know, there'd be a couple of candidates, although Khalil is, if he's going to be, you know, the number two center, uh, you know that that would be a that would be an issue. Uh, Jordan just kind of rounding back into form, but uh, but I do think uh, you know there are a couple of guys that yeah they could, they could make that switch if, if if they had to. I wouldn't give up on the uh, you know on the the three uh, three guys who were uh, sitting out spring. I, I think they've got a shot at uh, at being there you know in August and uh, uh, so. So we'll see, but but yeah, it's a good thought. Uh, Cody Temple is a guy that switched over. He's he's in there now. I guess I didn't ever consider him an offensive lineman. I always thought, <laughs> and when I looked at him from the very first day, he just did not look like he was ever going to be an offensive lineman. And you're right, yeah, he. But I just I never did mark him down as is an absolute offensive lineman. He yeah. always looked like a nose tackle to me. Yeah, that's right. Um, Okay, let's go to Melvin had a couple questions here. Uh, since spring practice is now over, what is the official status uh, of the coaches and players in regards to their the relationship between coaches and players interacting with each other with things like watching film, conditioning, and physical workouts? That's a good question. I mean, they, they, they certainly see the, you know, the strength and conditioning guys a lot. I mean, they probably see them more even off, you know, in season, they may see him more. They certainly are going to see him more now. Uh, I know they added uh, a couple of hours a week that they could have in, in our, uh, winter, or excuse me, in, uh, in the summer sessions with the coaches, direct kind of coaching kind of work, at least meetings and, and get-togethers. I don't know when that starts. That's a good question as to, you know, when does it start? Does it start, you know, before the, you know, season, uh, before the, you know, semester is over? I don't know. I'll find out about that. Yeah, Dan. And in general, uh, it's about eight hours. I think it's eight hours a week that the strength coaches can work with uh, the players. And then there's certain times when the other coaches can kind of get involved. But throughout the whole summer, there can never be footballs uh, used. So the players have to do their own kind of workout so there's no more players coaches and footballs until fall camp starts um but there are you know it's about eight hours a week i think i think what the rule is for strength coaches and they can do stuff on the field they can do stuff in the weight room and then at some point like like dan mentioned the the coaches can kind of get out there as well they can run through things and do stuff with the the position coaches and you know and the head coach and everything but like i said no football is allowed in, in those summer workouts yeah, I think they let them do two hours. 
was the change uh, maybe a year ago that they uh, that they allowed that to happen. I think they knew, you know. I mean, guys are allowed to meet with the coaches, and you know, so they're meeting in the you know in the, the coach's office or the meeting room or whatever. Uh, so they just said, you know, you can actually coach them uh, a couple of hours, and and that's hardly uh, you know. Uh, an overemphasis at all, yeah. but uh, yeah, they get to do something. So, yeah, yeah, a uh, little bit. I yeah. mean, there's more. Uh, when that starts is a good question. I don't, I don't know if it's, uh, if it's, uh, you know, that's if that rule was put in just for the summer, uh, or if that's a rule that you know goes, you know, that starts up, for example, as soon as spring practice is over. I don't know that. Yeah, we could find out and then uh, and let you know. They they change it a little bit every once in a while, but in general, about eight hours a week with the strength coaches and the regular coaches can do some too. He also wanted to know uh, what about the coaches recruiting at this time? Any dead periods, or can they go out and visit players? And they just actually started the May evaluation period, which I think starts April fifteenth and goes like six weeks. So uh, Gerard was posting a lot of we post stuff in the war room, and, and Gerard posted a lot on the Peristyle about where the coaches were going. They you know. The, the old staff used to make a lot of phone calls that first uh, day, that contact period of evaluation. And, you, you know, like whatever, 6 in the morning or whatever time you could call. Um, this staff kind of went out and hit the road and, and everyone was traveling and, and going to different schools. And when the, when the high schools have spring uh, spring practices, you can go check, check them out. But they can't go, like, interview the kid or anything like that on campus. But they can go check things out. The, the kids know that. You know, they'll talk to the coaches and the, and the players, the you know prospects know the coaches were there and, and offers go out. And like you saw, you know, USC got three commitments over the last uh, three days of last week. So uh, a lot of kind of stuff is happening right now. So it's definitely not a dead period. This is they call it the May evaluation period. And the coaches are out on the road and checking out all these prospects out. Yeah, I think the, the number GM had, and I thought it was a good number, uh, that the average USC coach is, is going to be on the road about 18 days the first month after spring ball. Oh, wow. So, so that's a good bit. I mean, there, and, and some of that's here where, uh, you know, they'll start today at, you know, a local high school or wherever. And, uh, you know, as we've seen, uh, some of that's paid off already. And then he had one last one between now and fall enrollment and practice, uh, for the incoming freshmen. Can those incoming freshmen use USC facilities for conditioning and looking at film during the summer months? Hmm. That's We've a good question seen too. Them here we know they're they're uh, oh gosh, that's a good. We've seen them work out at times. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, I'm not it's really not... sure because they're like usually you see them once they graduate and then they kind of get not officially involved, but they they come out and um, they'll they'll go through the summer workouts and stuff and. I, I think they'll start a lot of times they'll start the summer session and start classes and I think at that point you can kind of get things going similar to what the early enrollees do when they enroll and and start up but uh, I'm not 100% sure uh like what capacity to go in there but we usually start seeing them in June uh working like un- at least unofficially working out with the team um because that's like after they graduate, then they kind of make their way to USC a lot of times. Yeah, and it's all unofficial. I mean, you know, the university doesn't have anything to do with it. The coaches can't, you know, set the schedules and there's no required attendance and all that. So, uh, you know, it's uh, – and then guys work out on their own, uh, not necessarily at USC. And, uh, you know, anybody can show up at those, I, I think, without a doubt. Uh so it's pretty informal in a lot of ways, uh, but um, I would think last summer was the the least informal ever. Uh, I thought that was really run well. Yeah. When you considered all the freshmen that were involved, and there was a lot of learning going on, and a lot of uh, they got a lot of stuff done last summer uh, with those freshmen. So, uh, but as far as can they watch film? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm not not sure. I would think you could just go up there in the office. I don't think there's any kind of, you know, rule against you can't come watch film with the, I mean, you know, you can invite members of the media to come up and watch film. So I don't see why you couldn't invite someone that's enrolling in your school. Yeah, I just don't, you can't schedule them for that. But if they would come on their own, 
and ask to do that, I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure that they'd be allowed to do that. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to switch gears a little bit, Dan, because we did have, like I said, a lot of questions about the Reggie Bush stuff and, the, you know, Pat Hayden and Todd McNair and the NCAA. So there might be some overlap here. So I'll try to get to the voicemail ones first. And we do have a lot of people wrote in and uh, we'll try to get to everyone's questions or at least touch on all the topics that everyone uh, has brought up, if that's OK with you. Sure. All right. Well, he'll jump in. Let's do a voicemail question to start. Here you go. Hey, Ryan, this is Mario from Moody, California. I had a question for you and Dan. Recently, Pat Hayden was asked if you ever welcome back Reggie Bush to USC, and his answer was absolutely. From what I heard at the time when all the sanctions came down, USC was, perm- was supposed to permanently disassociate them from Reggie Bush. Now that the unsealed documents are out, do you feel like Reggie Bush will actually step foot on USC campus? Or from all the drama in the past that he's just done with USC and the whole NCAA mess? Uh, I'd like to get you guys' thoughts on that. Thanks, man. Love the show. Hey, Mary. Um, you know, there's been... There, I mean, America loves, you know, kind of forgiving and, you know, forgetting and, and all that. But you have to pretty much... Uh, uh, have a, a kind of an act of contrition, I think, a little bit there. Um, and, uh, you know, you had a situation where it didn't seem like anybody uh, listened to anybody and that nobody helped anybody. You know, I don't think, uh, you know, Reggie helped USC or himself, and USC probably didn't help, help the situation either. Uh, so I guess you could, you could see a situation – uh, where it made sense for everybody to make up. And I, you know, again, you'd love to see a situation where, you know, where USC tells the NCAA, you know, we were penalized for three years. You can't penalize anybody, you know, until, you know, till the day you die. I mean, who, nobody gets a penalty like that. I mean, does the NCAA even have, the, you know, the power to do that? The neat thing about it is, these kids now that are coming along 10 years after Reggie played are still talking about Reggie Bush. It was the one thing Paul D got right. He said USC was going to benefit, you know, recruiting because of Reggie. And I don't even know that any of us realized the impact, the lasting impact that that was going to have. I mean, did we laughed at, you know, Paul D was an idiot in some ways, uh, because he said, you know, Reggie was this high-profile player, blah, blah, blah. He was only the second, you know, Heisman Trophy guy in the USC backfield that year. He was <laughs> one of eight people, eight people on the cover of the media guy. Going into his senior year, to act like Reggie Bush was the highest-profile player on the USC team was a joke. I mean, it just made you aware of how much the NCAA didn't have any idea what was going on. But... uh if there were a way to do that, you know, that would be fine. And, and obviously nobody, you know, I mean, the NCA. let's face it, the NCA has people who for the USC case should be penalized for life more than Reggie Bush. Uh, so I would think USC ought to use that in ways in which they could, you know, get after the NCAA. The NCA has got a lot to hide and a lot to cover up and a lot to make up for. And, uh, you know, I don't think USC should back down. So I, I don't mind Pat doing that. I just think that Reggie would be way down my list of things for the USC, for USC to get back from the NCAA. Uh, there are a whole lot of other things that I'd like to see the US, USC have the NCAA address before Reggie Bush. Uh, but, you know, if they can get Reggie back and Reggie wants to be back and Reggie wants to, you know, talk about, gosh, I wish I would have been, you know, a little more of this or a little more of that uh, when when all this happened. Uh, that would be great. It's funny that uh, if, if people haven't listened to, uh, we did a second podcast last week with uh, Matt Leinert came on and talked about half an hour. And I, I mentioned that to him about, you know, we talked about Reggie Bush and how, how big of an influence he still is on recruiting. And it's like Matt Leinert won the Heisman, maybe the great, you know, the greatest 
quarterback in USC history, one of the great of, of college football history, but people don't say, I, you know, I want to come to USC because of Matt Leinart. They still say because of Reggie Bush, and he acknowledged that. He knew that, too. It's just the kind of special, dynamic player he was. Yeah, it's, but it's kind of amazing. I mean, these are kids that were seven and eight years old when Reggie was yeah. you know, playing at USC. So that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's go to uh, Bill had a question. He said, uh, there are some 200 emails, I think it means 200 pages of emails, uh, from the NCAA Bush investigation that have not been released. Can you give us an idea of when these will be released and why these emails were held out of the batch that has been released? And also, I've always felt that the entire investigation was a sham and the results were predetermined. Uh, the committee, except for uh, quote-unquote fat boy, I think he was talking about Paul D., um, were nothing more than dupes that were led around in the dark by D. The power brokers at the NCAA were behind the whole thing. Uh, they were behind the whole thing, and, as were the uh, conference commissioners such as Slive and Delaney. Larry Scott was the new kid on the block, and he got schooled by some of the folks trying to gain a competitive advantage. They ran a double reverse, getting us to focus on the potato head lady, Potato head lady. Uh oh, I think uh, Josephine Petuto. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get these nicknames here. And Missy Conboy. While the real villains were those advisors, non-voting people who were placed there out of sight and with no apparent judging role, just to get the power brokers' predetermined results. Dan, am I delusional? That's from Bill. No, I think they were predetermined. I don't think there's any question about that. The, the NCA staff, after the longest investigation in history had to come up with uh, uh, a conviction and a serious, serious penalty, you know, worse than the Miami penalty, uh, the Alabama penalty. And uh, you could tell from some of the emails we have seen that the, the staff, uh, you know, was a little bit under the gun. That they, they were, you know, not happy, the Committee on Infractions, uh, or at least those guys that, you know, technically weren't supposed to be voting and influencing people were not too happy that the uh, investigators haven't hadn't come up with anything and uh, and you could tell the pressure that everybody was under i think you may be given d too much credit as well i mean i think d was you know i think they were all led led around by the you know the three guys that we now i mean i think there was suspicion of that but there was no proof of it and every time it would be brought up the uh, they would deny it. You know, they would say things like, "Oh, the only time they had any influence on this or had any uh, ability to, you know, have a, you know, any look at what what was going on was, uh, oh, they would correct things for typos or, or whatever." Well, now we know that was totally not true. They weren't telling the truth. Uh, but it does look like the committee, and we had Missy Conboy tell a, you know an alumni group, an Notre Dame alumni group in Florida, that the committee kind of got hijacked. She didn't know that there was a USC guy in the audience, uh, and um, and so I think they've all already kind of admitted. I mean, basically, right now, I think most of the people on the committee on infractions for USC case were would do anything to be able to say. It wasn't our fault, you know. We 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 didn't realize, blah blah blah. I mean, they're trying to trying to dance their way out of it. Uh, so so I don't think you're you know you're delusional at all. Except that honestly, uh, I don't think Paul D was as much of an he was a he was the front guy who turned out to be the worst possible front guy they could have ever had. <laughs> uh, they made a rule after the USC case. Uh, the rule was, uh, you know, for an hour they would do a press conference when the uh, ruling comes down and the, com- the chairman of the committee would answer questions for an hour. As soon as that was over, the NCAA decided we're never going to let that happen again. <laughs> and uh, Paul D. had pretty much disgraced himself. Uh, a lot of references to the Miami case and uh, and who knew even what was coming with the next Miami case. But... Um, but I do think the uh, the NCAA staff and uh, and the non-voting members hijacked uh, the process. I don't think there's any question about that. And that the result came first, then the penalties, and then they thought they would be able to find the evidence, and that was their problem. The evidence wasn't there. 
they had to make it up. They had to change uh, the evidence that they got to even, you know, approach, uh, and they still couldn't really come up with with almost anything. So, uh, yeah. So you're not delusional, but, but <laughs> I wouldn't give D that much credit. All right, uh, let's go to another voicemail question for you, Dan. Here you go. Good day, Ryan. Uh, my name is Phil Trigg, Hern, uh, Northern Virginia. I just have a question. What is it going to take to get Pat Hayden off his butt and go after the NCAA? Uh, Dan Weber wrote an, an excellent article challenging Pat to uh, move forward quickly. If we don't move forward, this is just going to get swept under the rug, and the NCAA will continue to do what they do. Um, if anything, if if Pat isn't healthy enough to uh, to go after him, hire somebody. A good example might be uh, Coach McNair's legal team. Hire them. They seem to be pretty adept at uh, going after the NCAA. Just just concerned that we have the advantage and nothing's being done. Well, I think, uh, you know, back in Northern Virginia there, I think you see it, you know, fairly clearly, except for this. Here's my take on it. I don't know that USC needed to sue or needed or needs to sue now or needs to do any of that, but they don't need to take it off the table. They don't need to tell anybody they're not going to do this or they're not going to do that. I mean, I just think you have to, you know, keep everything on the table and, and keep everything a possibility. And you don't meekly accept it. Uh, when you look at the results that, you know, happened, I know people are still saying, oh, the NCAA would have held a grudge and the NCAA, da, da, da. And they were still, and yet you look at, did they hold a grudge against Ohio State or Oregon or, uh, you know, North Carolina? Or Miami, I mean, they can't hold a grudge. If they, they get caught holding a grudge, they would be in more trouble than they're in now. Uh, so uh, I just think there were opportunities for USC to make some aggressive uh, plays in defending their case as they came up, after Judge Schaller's ruling, for example. Different places along the way where USC could have maybe uh, parlayed what was coming out and the the position the NCAA, I mean, the NCAA, you know, did some dumb things like in the Miami case or the UCLA case on Shabazz Muhammad or whatever, where they said something or they had one thing go wrong. But in the USC case, you got a whole systematic, uh, you know, case of, of the NCAA doing many, many, many things wrong. And um, just, you know, Maybe if all you're doing is defending your players, if all you're doing is defending your alumni, if all you're doing is defending your coaches, if all you're doing is defending, uh, you know, any uh, Todd McNair, for example, uh, you know, what if you just decide he's gotten really screwed and, and you go, you, you figure out ways in which you could use the things that, that came along and are still coming along that could benefit USC. As Brody Boy on the Peristyle points out, there are two different cases, and they absolutely are. The USC case is not the Todd McNair case, and the Todd McNair case is more clear-cut. But uh, uh, I think if you look at the – and Todd's got really smart lawyers, and Bruce Borlett, I think, made the case in the very first hearing when he said – the reason the NCAA did what it did to Todd McNair and had to do what it did to Todd McNair was that was the only way they could justify the penalties they gave USC. So you could say there are two completely different cases, but they are related. I think without a doubt they knew that they had to show a connection. It would have been impossible as much as they wanted to uh, to take USC down the way they did if they would have said there was no connection between anyone at USC and what was going on with Reggie Bush. None whatsoever. They couldn't go there. So 
I think USC could have used much of what happened with the topic there uh, part of the case to uh, defend itself. How that would have played out, uh, I think the suggestion that Todd's lawyers really figured out some things that the NCAA didn't realize, and they set some traps for the NCAA, they got the NCAA to a place the NCAA has never had to go before in, uh, in, in, in defending itself and this whole process. Uh, uh, I would have probably liked to have seen USC uh, counsel, see if they could uh, consult with the people that are handling the, the McNair case and what the legal ethics are there and, and, and can you represent both McNair and USC and all of that. I really don't know. But I would have liked to have seen them, uh, you know, get some of that kind of uh, uh, consulting from people who were successfully taking on the NCAA. Yeah, it could have been some parallel action for sure. I mean, you don't, you know, just at least kind of work together at some, if as much as you can. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, David had a question. Someone who seems to be in a position to know tells me that Pat Hayden had wanted to do more, uh, be more aggressive with the NCAA, but was prohibited from doing so by Max Nikias, the USC president. Uh, has Dan heard anything like that, David? You know, we hear so many things. It's so hard to tell. I mean, Pat's, you know, really a good soldier if that's the case, because he, he hasn't indicated that in a way. Uh, he really makes the case uh, that it would have been hard to do and it would have been hard to prove economic damages and, it just, there were so many, uh, you know, ways in which, and it's tough. If you're Pat, and the first thing you come out and, and pretty much say is that, you know, we're going to try to do things the right way, and then you find out everybody else in college football was probably doing them in a worse way than USC, and you you end up with two of the major felons that followed USC who got slapped on the wrist, Oregon and Ohio State, end up playing in the first ever you know, college football playoff championship game and, you know, with 85 scholarships and they just moved right on and, you know, barely a blip on their, uh, you know, football program with what you saw happen to USC. So, uh, you know, just saying it's unfair, we thought, uh, oh, now we know it really was unfair. I mean, I think the biggest mistake for me looking at the USC case from the USC perspective, was that they did not aggressively, once Judge Saller gave his ruling in November 2012, that was the time for, the, for USC publicly, privately, in every way they could to exert pressure. They, they should not have had to wait, you know, almost two and a half years to see those emails. I mean, they should have demanded from the NCAA in every way possible and, and without saying that there would be a limit on, on what USC would do if they didn't get to see those emails. They should have said, we need to see them. Uh, this, you know, basically, you know, the only independent jurist who's taken a look at them, you know, has talked about, uh, you know, what they were, you know, what happened in this case. And it wasn't fair. And it was malicious. And, uh, you know, unfair to uh, Todd McNair, unfair to USC. And um, I think that's where USC could have gotten the moral high ground fairly quickly in the case and put the NCA on the defensive and put the NCA on the defensive so that when you go ask them to adjust the scholarship situation because of, of you know, having to go to games with 44 originally recruited scholarship players, where the NCA would find it much harder to turn you down when you ask for adjustments in the penalty structure and that kind of thing. Uh, but USC kept that quiet, didn't put any uh, you know, pressure on the NCAA, the kind of pressure that Ohio State did and Oregon did and North Carolina did and Miami did. Uh, you know, those schools, Auburn, SEC at least, uh, those schools uh, – had fairly good results from putting, you know, from being aggressive and putting pressure on the NCA. USC chose to go the other way. They said, you know, we don't want to look like football is that important to us. We're, you know, in the business of raising six billion dollars, and we're, you know, becoming a, you know, great, you know, college uh, campus and a great 
college uh, research institution and a great academic institution. And uh, we don't want it to look like football is maybe all that important. So we really, it's been not possible to, you know, even if you, you know people who know people or you know people who are on the board or were on the board or whatever, those discussions just didn't seem to go outside the board. I mean, it's really been been difficult to know where that final decision was made and what exactly, um, you know, went into making it. And is it, you know, written in stone or is, is it still possible that they could decide, uh, even at this late date, that there's a place to, uh, to make the case for USC? I don't know. I, I really don't know. We will see. You keep getting more and more information as the weeks and weeks go on. Slow, but we're we're getting more. And and of course, Dan Weber's been on top of it. Uh, Matt had an interesting question, a little different perspective. He said it's hard to argue that the NCAA. Uh, it's hard to argue that the NCAA fairly punished the USC football program. In fact, it's pretty clear they went overboard with a witch hunt that they will end up regretting. But what about the O.J. Mayo situation? With all the attention on Reggie Bush and football, we all kind of forget about the accusations against the basketball program. What do we know about that situation and how the NCAA reacted? That's from Matt. Well, I mean, it was different. Uh, The NCAA cleared O.J. to come to USC. I mean, and later on, they changed the definition of um, uh, basically – the fellow who was involved in, uh, you know, as an AAU guy involved with, uh, you know, OJ coming to USC, a Los Angeles-based guy, had been involved five years, I guess it was five years earlier, in a in a violation, and no one considered him a representative of USC's athletic interests until, in the middle of the case, and the NCAA said, oh, by the way. We've changed the definition for this guy. He's now a, a, a representative of USC's athletic interests or whatever. I mean, he did that a couple of times in the case. Um, uh, after, you know, clearing OJ and saying he was okay, he was good to go, I, I would have probably, and I liked OJ personally a lot, you know. I mean, here's a kid, you know, everybody said, oh, he, he was getting this and he was getting that, you know, and he, he drove a, you know, a, a green bicycle around one of the reasons he was still involved with that guy was he needed a ride when they wanted, you know, if they were going to go to UCLA or wherever around town to play in the summer, OJ didn't have a car. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, uh, but that was settled separately pretty much. That was a case where USC self-sanctioned for OJ and, um, and the NCAA accepted those. Uh, they probably over-sanctioned themselves when they gave up that entire recruiting class of a you know a team that might have you know been a Final Four team if they'd have kept them all. But uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't think uh, you know if you take a look at what OJ's situation was and compare it to uh, a lot of the big-time programs right now. You know, OJ was so small potatoes, uh, and OJ was a good student. He he worked real hard, you know. He stayed in school so that USC wouldn't lose, uh, you know, out on the you know the APR. You know, when when he left, he finished up his second semester. So I don't have any really bad you know feelings about OJ. Uh, I do think USC should have probably paid a little more attention uh, to the fellow that you know delivered him to USC. And probably would have, you know, been a little more arm's length relationship there, uh, just because of, of of whatever, you know. And then it turns out you wouldn't have given the NCAA a chance to change the uh, the definition and try to make it look worse than it was. But uh, but I think they were pretty separate. Uh, we got a few more. We'll try to squeeze in here. Abel says, Dan, I mostly follow you via the Peristyle podcast. Just curious. If there's been any movement on the document, uh, uh, excuse me, the documentary by Scott Conrad now that the veil has been removed on the NCAA, and just one comment to vent frustration: Where are Pete Thamel and Dan Wetzel 
Wetzel was a key player in fabricating a story to bring down USC, and since the release of the emails, not a single comment has been made. That's from Abel. Yeah, I think he would. Uh, I think Wetzel would really like to put that way behind him because uh, Yahoo did that essentially to try to, you know, uh, they were getting started and they they wrote every story with the lead graph to the effect that. Uh, Reggie Bush da, 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 could cost USC their national championship and Reggie Bush's highs because they knew, uh, you know, just agent involvement, you know, like that wasn't that big a deal or an amateurism violation wasn't that big a deal. But if they could tie it to USC losing uh, a national championship, uh, that was a big deal. So they decided and, and probably basically for their own good to try to make it a bigger deal than it was. And so they did. And uh, I would think right now Wetzel would probably not want to talk about that very much. Uh, and uh, why the New York Times hasn't gotten involved in this? I mean, they did join the lawsuit to get the, uh, to get the, uh, you know, the information released and made public. And uh, I mean, you know, Part of the problem, and this is, we found out that this is somewhat the case, it's hard to come in on a situation where essentially what you would be doing is kind of righting the wrong and defending USC. I mean, the facts are the facts. And if, you know, USC got, you know, really screwed by the NCAA, if you're going to do that story and do it properly, you're basically going to defend USC. Problem is, USC hasn't chosen yet almost, you know, in any way to defend USC. And it, it's hard to defend somebody that won't defend itself and that won't really speak up for itself. So, Gabe, if you wanted to do a big story and you had maybe, you know, the one, um, you know, statement that USC released and that was about it, um, that's hard. I mean, if USC, if you say, well, what are you going to do? Oh, well, I think, I don't know. <laughs> it's, so you put these people who might do more or say more in a difficult spot because you're not doing more or saying more as USC. So, so that's been you know, kind of the problem all along. Um, I think the, the LA Times was really missed the boat for years. Um, they, were, they had a kind of an attitude that... Uh, yeah, USC this and USC that, and and they just didn't didn't pick up on it, and uh, and and weren't paying attention, and when they did, they were kind of negative, uh, and and they certainly had you know the the manpower and the, you know the ability to to get the story done, if they would have wanted to, but they didn't want to, uh, and again USC didn't help by uh you know by not pushing uh you know on that story uh so you know i think those are places where you know if you have is there a criticism of usc maybe not being a little more public and, and a little more pro um its own athletes and its own coaches i mean the kids that came through usc then that weren't allowed to go to bowl games who were completely innocent they were made to play and practice with way fewer players than anybody they were playing. That they didn't back off at all. They didn't schedule down. They didn't, you know, run away from anything. Uh, I think USC owed them more to stand up, you know, for them and and, and to fight for them and um, and to say, look, this isn't right, and something ought to be done about it. And that just didn't happen. Uh, all right, let's go to Earl in West L.A. He says, Dan Weber always seems to provide insightful commentary and perspective. I just heard him say last Monday on the podcast that Larry Scott is smart enough to know he needs to do some fence mending with USC. The next day I read in the L.A. Times that Scott criticized the NCAA's investigation and punishment of USC. Scott was quoted by Gary Klein as saying, We've maintained from the beginning the USC case is a good example of how the current enforcement system is not fair and consistent across the board. I could swear he and the rest of the conference have been quiet as church mice on this issue. Was he ever publicly quoted as saying this at any time in the last six years? Love the show. Keep it going. Fight on Earl in West L.A. 
Earl, I actually talked to Larry Scott well, a couple of times about it. <laughs> uh, at first, I don't think he knew what to say. And the USC had Lane as the coach, and everybody was you know, worried about Lane to begin with. Uh, and then we got him at the halftime of a game a couple of years ago. And all he could say was, you know, we don't like it, but it's hard to not agree with the NCAA's kind of ruling where every um, committee on infractions case is its own case. And he said, that's how they've justified everything they've done to USC, is they've said, there are no precedents. There are no precedents for judging these cases. There are no precedents for penalties that these each in the, each uh, committee on infractions group can be independent of every other group. And so we don't think they did the right thing, but they had the right to do it. Uh, you know, I, I tend to agree they didn't do the right thing. I also tend to agree they didn't have the right to do it the way they did it. Uh, but it was like a bad thing happened, you know, from Larry's, the way Larry saw it, a really bad thing happened to USC, and that's just too bad. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, and it did fit in with his feelings that he made really clear when he got here that he didn't like USC in the 11 doors or the USC in the nine doors, and he wanted to change that. And, uh, and and he did, certainly it seems, you know, their staff probably has more people from Cal. They're, you know, eight miles from Berkeley. Um, and Larry certainly seemed to cozy up to Stanford in a, in a few situations. And he certainly seemed, whenever he got the chance to come down hard on USC, I mean, if he didn't have a USC player to suspend, there wouldn't have been anybody you know, or not suspend necessarily, but, uh, uh, you know, call out. I mean, called out Matt Barkley. I mean, imagine <laughs> you had a case involving Matt Barkley and Vontez Burfick, and you came down on Vontez Burfick's side against Matt Barkley. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, and, and, and at the time, USC couldn't help him. Uh, you know, he didn't have to rule for example, that USC wasn't allowed in, in 2011 to play in the first ever championship game. USC could have played in that game, and the Pac-12 could have let them. Sure, the Pac-12 would have been taking a chance that USC might have won. Hey, they'd already beaten Oregon once, uh, but, um, but Larry wasn't going to take that chance, even if it was, you know, now we know, you know, unfair. To those USC kids, they deserved the the right to you know they weren't going to get a bowl game, but they certainly had earned the right to be in that championship game. But um, um, that wasn't going to happen, and I don't think we're going to hear an apology from Larry uh, about that. But uh, but yeah, they've uh, they've been kind of quiet. And uh, again, you hear the both stories. One story is that USC wants them to be, or has wanted them to be, or that would make USC. Uh, put USC in a place where they don't want to be. And the other story is that they're happy as can be to, to not have to make that case because the other, other 11 schools in the Pac-12 are just as happy that USC got slapped down and they don't want to be reminded of, you know, that it wasn't a fair, uh, you know, fair process. All right, we've got one last one for you, Dan, and then we have a basketball question. One last, Todd McNair. Simple one from Terry in. What exactly is the status of the Todd McNair lawsuit, and what's the next move? Well, the status is um, the court will decide if they're going to dismiss. You know, Todd McNair's lawyers wanted the, the NCA's uh, motion. I guess the NCA wanted to appeal the decision. To, uh, you know, to, uh, oh gosh, how did they? Anyway, their dismissal. Uh, I guess Todd's lawyers said the NCA's uh, appeal should be dismissed and, and we should hear the merits of the case, whereas uh, uh, because they didn't um, file a complete record, they withheld those 200 pages. Uh, whether there will be a hearing on that, both sides have filed their you know, briefs or their motions or whatever they call it. Uh, whether there will be a hearing on that, 
there are a lot of people who think that court will just rule and they'll move to the next phase, which is they're going to set a hearing date for the the case on its the appeal on its merits. What everybody that observes the court says is the NCAA is going to lose on that. This is this case is not going to get dismissed, uh, uh, and that at that point it'll go back to Los Angeles Superior Court for trial. Uh, there are those who say that that could happen, you know, by the end of the summer, and that at that point the uh, McNair's attorneys. We understand, and we can only imagine, uh, they've only gotten discovery. Well, let's say they've gotten limited discovery for the motion where the NCA said we wanted to uh, dismiss the case. Uh, they don't have a case, and it's just free speech, and we're allowed to say what we want to say. Uh, that They got limited discovery, McNair's attorneys did. One member of the Committee on Infractions several staff members, that's pretty much it. If it goes to trial, they will get full discovery and they will be able to uh, depose all of the rest of the people. I think of the eight voting members, seven uh, would be deposed and they'd be able to depose all of the members of the Infractions Appeals Committee and a number of other people on the NCA staff that haven't been, and probably former members of the NCA staff. Um, at that point, one, I mean, I've heard from, you know, attorneys who said there is no way that the NCA can let that happen. They absolutely can't afford to have those people uh, be deposed. And I would tend to agree as well. So, um, Will the NCAA, you know, pony up the money and just say we can't go, you know, any further down this road? We stalled as long as we could. We stalled and lost because those 500 pages came out. Um, and whether I still don't think we know exactly what the mechanics of the other 200 pages coming out, how that will how that will work. And you know, they were they've been arguing over what the language that the court gave the NCA, where they said that the, the NCA could decide what record to file in their appeal. And McNair's attorney said that, that meant they either filed everything or they didn't file anything. Uh, and the NCA said, no, this gives us the right to pick which, which 500 pages we want to file and which 200 we don't want to file. So the court has to decide that first, and then they go to the merits of the appeal uh, where they're going to they're, they're appealing Judge Saller's ruling, and I don't think they have a shot at winning that. So that means it goes back to L.A., and, uh, and, and they get ready for trial. And uh, I can't, again, it's impossible to imagine that the NCA lets that happen. Uh, it would be brutal beyond belief. If, if, what you, if what's happened already looks bad, I think it would get worse. And, uh, and just the, the drip, drip, drip of more bad information and more bad info and more embarrassing information about these people who, who have in the past been very proud you know, that they represent their institution and their law professors and they're on the NCAA Committee on Infractions. Well, in the future, that isn't going to be a resume enhancer. <laughs> and uh, these people are not going to want you to know they were even on the USC case. I mean, I'm, I think most of the people on the USC case right now, if they had their druthers, if they could erase their name uh, from that case, they would. And so... You know, anything that keeps that case alive and keeps it, you know, out in the public eye, they can't want that to happen. So, but that's that, that's what happens next after we assume that they're going to lose on appeal on the merits of the case. Because the ruling Judge Schaller issued in the NCA case, I mean, you know, there's, I mean, now that you read the emails, you can't possibly, you know, defend the fact that, they 
they don't have a good shot at winning a defamation lawsuit against the NCAA. And right. that's what, in order for the um, the case to be dismissed, you'd pretty much have to say they got no case whatsoever. Well, it's obvious they've got a case. Yeah. So they're not going to get this case dismissed. And where that goes, uh, we can only hope. I mean, that would be a summer of unbelievable interesting fun if that case went to court in LA we'd be all over that so we'll uh... yeah, I, I can't even imagine how <laughs> how interesting that would be uh, how ugly that would be for the NCAA uh, all right well Dan we're going to end it on I might maybe it's not but it might be our first ever women's basketball question and I didn't know uh-huh. what was going on here you might be more aware of what's up but I'll play the question for you and let you uh, answer if you can here you go Hi, this is Richard, the USC basketball fan, and as many concerns as I have for the men's program, I had a disturbing thing come up the other day about the women's basketball team where two of their stars, uh, freshmen, are transferring out. They had another one transfer out at the beginning of the season, and they had another one dismissed from the university after getting arrested before the season. I know Cynthia Cooper is a good coach, but I'm wondering uh, if you guys have any comments on this or what is uh, – going on uh they only have six returning players back my daughter follows sc basketball really well so if you have any insights i'd sure appreciate it and uh fight on enjoy the show thanks again bye i wish i could help you uh i can't uh i know i've tried to watch some usc basket women's basketball games and uh and i just i think i'm 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 spoiled by there's great, great USC women's basketball programs that were, you know, the best teams in America at the start, you know, when women's college basketball was really getting off to, uh, you know, to become a national sport. And uh, and you go watch them now and you realize, you know, if you can't stay with, you know, the Oregon states of this world and all that, it reminds you too much of the men's team. And, um, and so I don't know. I don't know the details you're talking about. I know they've had problems, and, and you know that people kind of have a good feeling, you know, about the coach. That um, it, it isn't showing up on the floor. Um, and you would think USC, you know, in a sport where it is more about getting your education and you know having a great school to go to. Uh, than it is about getting ready to play, you know, professional basketball. You'd think USC would have kind of a, a natural advantage uh, in terms of all the, you know, recruiting possibilities and, in, you know, the location and, and the school itself. And um, we don't see that happening. Um, so I think it will probably be paying a little more attention next year, to, you know, to see where this goes. But, you know, they, they haven't had much luck. Uh, the last couple of years on either side of, of you know of the ball with, with regard to basketball, but uh, you, you're telling me some things I don't think I know firsthand. So we'll have to check those out. Yeah, we can, and I, I think Shotgun is usually he knows uh, Cynthia Cooper pretty well. Um, they talk a lot. I guess she's a big football recruiting fan. Like she knows what's going on with football recruiting, which is kind of funny. But if you want to go to the Peristyle, just on uscfootball.com and maybe ask that question there, we can uh, have Shotgun kind of – he probably knows a little bit more what's going on, but we could look into it as well. But I, I just – I had no idea. I'd never even heard of that. Uh, we just don't follow uh, women's basketball all that much. I'm sorry. You know, football kind of takes us 365 days a year. That's what people care most about. So that's, I, mean, that's I, I think the thing you want is to have a- – women's basketball program that demands that you pay some attention and that we don't probably is not a good thing. I mean, you know, uh, men's base, you know, obviously baseball this year yeah. has kind of demanded that you you really pay attention to them. And I, I think that's what the other sports, uh, you know, and obviously I mean, I'll, uh, as much as I can, you know, with the women's uh, tennis team or the men's tennis team and you watch them and, uh, you know, they got a chance to win a national championship or the women's golf team or whatever, and you'll watch them and uh, the water polo teams and all that. 
uh, I do think, you know, because those teams have, have developed the way they have, it's hard if you're one of the kind of non-revenue sports that uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't get up there and has a chance to, to really be something special. So, hey, Didn't the women's basketball team win, like, the Pac-12 tournament a year or two ago? Am I, I think they might have. I think they got hot. I'm trying to think. Did they actually win it? I know. Or make it to the finals or played something. Played at USC. I think one year they played it at USC. Uh, yeah, and I think I don't. I'm not sure who was the coach then. Uh, but um, yeah, I don't think they've you know reached that that you know level since then. And and I don't you know we look at it and you just you're not sure why uh, that they just don't seem to be. I think the last time I saw. Them, okay, yeah, I just googled it just for real quick. It's 2014. They beat Oregon State to win the first Pac-12 tournament championship. So okay, so they huh? you know, that was nice that they did that last year. Um, I totally uh, okay. Yeah, but do we know what's going on with uh, transfers and stuff? I'm sorry, we we do not. <laughs> No, <laughs> not our area of expertise, but we can, uh, you know, we can look into it and, and you know, definitely. Well, that like... was last year. Okay, so that again tells you that you know maybe our fault, maybe their fault that you didn't have that that sense of um, of them, you know, because I'm not sure. Did it go to the tournament? Huh? Yeah, I don't, uh, they had to. Well, in 2014, they did. I don't remember what they did in the NCAA tournament, but they did because yeah, they I don't won. Remember that at all? Yeah. Wow crazy okay all right well we'll look we'll at the, definitely we'll study up on that a little bit more. yeah <laughs> and check on the peristyle ask shotgun and he probably knows what's going on we can we can start a thread and discuss it and i think other people will be able to chime in as well so sorry we couldn't give you a better answer than that but uh dan great long show but thank you so much for uh joining us and uh you know taking both spots your spot and coach harvey hyde spot so thanks for uh, coming on and answering all the questions um Answered some of them. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know all of them, but we did, we did our best. But uh, we'll try. Yeah. Well, thanks, Dan, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the Peristyle Pod- Podcast. Don't forget, go back to peristylepodcast.com if you want to hear my interview with uh, USC Heisman winning quarterback Matt Leinart. We did that uh, last week. It's a really good one, so if you want to, you can enjoy that uh, when after you listen to this one. So I hope you enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you all next week. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 